Hi, this is Soren Kaplan, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidberkuscom slash podcast. Click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkuscom You can also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the United States, just text the word radio free to 33444. We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidberkuscom slash podcast or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do? My name's Soren Kaplan. I'm an author, speaker, consultant, and professor at the University of Southern California Center for Effective Organizations. Oh, hang on. Wait a minute. That's new. That is new. Yeah. So uh, long-time listeners of the show will know we've had Soren on before. Uh, I believe he was sort of a guest lecturer at a school somewhere in Scandinavia. Now, University of Southern California. When, when did that start? Well, I, uh, I kind of jump around to business schools doing executive ed. I do uh, work at the Copenhagen Business School, Melbourne Business School, but my kind of home base now is in the U.S. Uh, at USC. The Center for Effective Organizations is a group of um, kind of uh, researchers and thought leaders in various topics related to how do you design organizations uh, for the kind of next century. And so I've uh, affiliated with them and, and do a whole bunch of research and writing and, and uh, executive ed through that uh, program there. Oh, that is, that's awesome. I, the irony too, knowing you personally is uh, it's University of Southern California, but you live in like the beautiful green hills of Northern California, but that's, yeah, it's fine. The, the one time I drove out to go meet and have dinner with you, by the way, I was super jealous just of the drive to get there is utterly beautiful. I'd have to say the entire Bay Area is beautiful. I've lived in Silicon Valley. I've lived in San Francisco. I am now just outside of Berkeley in the East Bay. It is all great. Yeah. So um, we are here on the occasion of the birth of a new idea for you. I mean, it's not a new idea. It's just new to all of us. Um, the book, uh, new book, The Invisible Advantage. And this one really, so if I may put like uh, your own thought process in your head, if I can inception your reasons for writing a follow-up. The first book was Leapfrogging. It was fantastic. Lots of very sort of process and tools for having great innovative ideas. Invisible Advantage is a bit more about sort of how do you do that accidentally, right? How do you create a culture that lets those kind of things happen? I'm guessing there was a discovery that sort of tools and tactics without a culture-dedicated innovation uh, has a diminishing return, or uh, what was your reason for saying, hey, you know what, now we need to talk about the culture piece? Well, I love the word uh, accidentally that you just used because I think that that is the essence of why I wrote the book. Most executives, leaders, companies kind of leave their culture to kind of chance. Um, 
And that's really uh, the downfall in today's uh, turbulent environment where basically competitive advantage is fleeting. Product, service, business models, technologies will be commoditized. So really the only lever you have to create sustainable or semi-sustainable competitive advantage is your culture. And if you leave it up to accident, you're kind of screwed. So if you want a culture that sustains value creation and business growth, you really want an innovation culture. And there's actually very specific things you can do to get it. So, I mean, I would imagine one of those is like install a cereal bar and let people take their animals to work and like shorts in the office and that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. And you don't forget the food spot. Foosball table. Yeah, foosball table, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Actually, it's kind of funny. It, it Every time I visit uh, Silicon Valley and meet, you know, tour around and go to another startup, and, and I'm not, I don't want to throw them under the bus. Some of them have amazing world-changing ideas, but then there are the ones that uh, don't, and yet they're still like, oh, look, we've got a kegerator, and look, at we have all of our meals for free, and sometimes you also want to be like, oh, there's only 20 of you. This isn't a hard deal. Talk to me when you talk to me when there's 30,000 and you're still doing free food, but anyway, um, I mean, we, we tend to look at a lot of those um, surface-level things, right? Edgar Schein would call them the artifacts, but culture is kind of much deeper, and so I'd imagine we have to start much deeper. It's not just the foosball table. You do need to start much deeper. And, and, you know, I think even starting with what is culture, um, you know, there's, there's been definitions, you know, kind of how things are done around here. Um, I like to think about it as the, the norms and values that drive behavior. So, you know, a foosball table does not drive behavior. Maybe it drives, you know, having fun in the afternoon, but really it's those really deeply seated underlying norms and values that shape the assumptions about what kind of behavior is desired, what kind of behavior is good, what kind of behavior is bad. Culture exists in, you know, every country. So we're familiar with kind of geographic based cultures, Um, but every organization has cultures and even subcultures. Hmm. So, so, all right. So this is an interesting one because I think, uh, you know, you, you bring something into mind when you say subcultures, I think a lot of companies, um, I, you, so we, we joked about the foosball table model and the free food and whatever the other, um, model that a lot of places go to try and be more innovative is to just create a subunit of innovation. So we're not going to worry about the whole culture. We're just going to create a skunk works. We're going to create this little group over here. And they'll be all innovative. And of course, everybody in like the main operations just looks at them as a waste of money. Um, but we're, we're talking about you want some differences in subunits, but you want some commonalities among the entire thing. It's not enough to just have a skunk works. Well, you know, it, it, it's every organization's different. So for some organizations that create those kind of separate business units or skunk works, it's because they've recognized that the antibodies of their core business are going to kill you know, new thinking and new business models and new ideas every time. And so they've kind of just come to the conclusion, hey, we don't really have a culture of innovation that's going to lead to the big stuff in the core business. We got to protect it and separate it out and do it that way. Um, But there are other organizations, uh, and I can provide a whole bunch of examples, um, but there's other organizations that essentially have said, we want a culture of innovation and we want everyone to innovate in whatever way makes sense for their job, their role, and their function. And you can you know, have a culture of innovation in your legal department or in HR uh, or in product, you know, product development as well. But that's kind of where innovation usually resides anyway. But culture basically, you know, those organizations that separated out have basically essentially concluded that they can't get innovation kind of in a broad-based way, in a big way that they're looking for. 
Hmm. All right. So that that makes a, a lot of sense. And again, explains that idea that they can't get it in a broad way. So I guess, I mean, in the book, there's a couple different ways to start. There, there's a bunch of different things. I have questions around symbols and measurement and all of those sort of stuff. But I, I don't want to jump the gun. Where do we sort of start this whole process of culture change? Well, you know, I can give some examples from some of my clients. I've worked just kind of as a sidebar. I've worked across industries globally. Um, some of my clients, Cisco, Disney, Visa, um, a number of you know, global companies in South Korea, in Europe, and every company has a culture. I mean, that's a common denominator. Um, and But not every company approaches designing their cultures for innovation um, in the same way. They, they actually should be different. Um, and so where do you start? I think you really start with your definition of what do you even mean by innovation? Um, so I, for example, I was working with um, an insurance company uh, recently, pretty well-known insurance company in the United States. And their executive team knew they wanted innovation, but really um, hadn't kind of zeroed in on the portfolio of different types of innovation they could focus on. And so one of the things we did is we kind of mapped out them the differences between disruptive innovation and the insurance industry is being you know, close to being disrupted soon. And so they knew that they needed to kind of look at whole new business models. So disruptive was important. The incremental stuff, just around the cult, the customer experience. How do you focus on driving kind of just better customer experience so you can kind of compete in today's markets. And then the sustaining innovation, which is basically kind of the next generation of, you know, kind of your insurance business. And, um, and actually that example is in my book. It's, uh, the, the California state automobile association here in Northern California. That's, that's basically the insurer for AAA. Um, and so they created a portfolio view and what they were basically calling their innovation intent, their innovation intents to create a culture of innovation where all three of those types of innovation are viable and supported. I love that idea of an, an innovation intent, right? Because it, um, fr- from a symbolic standpoint, actually, it, it reminds me of like, I think of all of those posters of corporate values and innovation just becomes sort of one of those words that gets a pretty picture and a quote and then it's one of our core values. And we, you know, we say it as if we already do it, but it's kind of, especially when you're doing culture change, people see that through that right away that like when we're not there yet, you're just sort of suddenly deciding that we have world-class innovation. We haven't actually gotten there yet. I have uh, another client um, that essentially I I went in there and they said, Hey, we need a culture of innovation. And I, yeah, (laughs) no problem. Cool. I'll have that up in about a week. Let's create that. Um, And, and so, you know, I, one of the things I always do is I do kind of a diagnostic, I I do either a survey or interviews or both. And, and actually those, all those tools are in my book. So they're, what I use is, is right there. Um, But, you know, I went in and I basically started asking questions. And one of the things that um, they said is that they had just redone their value statements. And one of their values was presume trust. And so what does that tell you about the organization? It basically means there's there was no trust in that organization. People yeah. didn't trust each other. Yeah, can we dive deeper into that? What what is the difference between presumed trust and trust? Well, the <laughs> the notion was that you should when you interact with other people, you should presume and assume that that person is being honest to you and they're trustworthy in terms of what you share with them. And so they want they they basically stated that that was one of their values. 
Well, in order to state the reason they're stating that as a value is because it actually didn't exist, and they wanted that as a value. <laughs> it's yeah, it's sort of like there's a, there's an old joke about you know the really weird thing is to read the the Old Testament of the Bible to read the Ten Commandments and think there were really people who were doing that, and you know <laughs> Abraham and God had to tell the people, hey, cut that stuff out, right? It's it's the same deal here, right? The fact that they have to say presumed trust as a core value signals the idea that like it's so bad we have to point this out. That is correct. And so a lot of times you can look at, you know, and you're deciphering innovation culture or just culture. You look at what people are saying and actually look at what the opposite of that may be. Um, and that kind of gives you some clues. Um, but, you know, on the flip side, like, you know, we're talking about innovation intent. Um, every organization can have an innovation intent. So, you know, um, there's there's companies like Intuit, Silicon Valley uh, software company, and their innovation intent is essentially to, you know, pro- help um, their customers um, kind of transform their financial lives so they won't go back to the old way of doing things. And obviously they sell like Quicken and QuickBooks and things like that. Um, but even nonprofits. So, so I've worked with um, KQED, which is one of the public broadcasting stations, kind of the leading one of the bigger ones in uh, the U.S. in San Francisco. And KQED, you know, they're a they're a nonprofit. Um, they're you know very focused on just providing community media. You know, Sesame Street. I well grew up watching Sesame Street on KQED. Well, I worked with their executive team. And they needed a, you know, they wanted to create an innovation intent, but you know that's very different from you know selling a product and trying to kind of take over a market. And so their innovation intent, it's in my book, it's basically reads doing the right thing for our audience, our the community, supporters, our staff, and our organization by continually assessing, prioritizing, and improving what we do and how we do it. So, you know, they're basically making it so accessible to everyone, no matter who you are, if you're serving, you know, you know, if it's a staff or if you're you know, trying to get community support and you're, and you're providing kind of, you know, trying to get out there and just, um, you know, or even fundraise, it doesn't matter what part of the organization you're in, you can see a line of sight from your innovation intent to your role and just making things better. Hmm. Oh, I think that's solid, solid advice. So one of the things I think is interesting in this book, you touch on it um, a little bit, actually not a little bit, you dedicate a whole chapter to it, but uh, is this the idea of measurement, right? And I know this is, you know, as a researcher, measurement on innovation is super hard because you can kind of only measure the end result, right? And and you know, for some companies, it's easy to measure the end result with patents and other things like that. For others, it's super hard. But let's talk about this. So we have culture. How do we measure, A, a level of innovation, but how do we also measure that we're making progress towards our intent, that we're actually changing the culture? So you're totally right, and it is important to measure results. I mean, if you don't measure results, you don't you know, kind of have a gauge to, you know, are you improving? Um, the way I look at it, and the chapter title is measure what's meaningful. You know, define what you want, then measure it. So, you know, define what you want from an end end result piece, I think, is, is, um, is important. But, you know, if you, if you quote Drucker, you know, Peter Drucker, management guru, he basically says what's measured improves. So, you know, you can, you can measure the end result, but a lot of times that doesn't inspire nor tell people what to do. I mean, that's kind of where you go from theory, you know, uh, measure the end result to, well, how do you actually get to the end result? So, you know, from a very practical standpoint, 
you know, there's, there's a various things you can measure. So you want to articulate the end game, of course, from an innovation standpoint, the end game around, you know, profit end game around revenues from new products or services introduced in the last three years, um, revenues from products or services sold in new customer segments. Those are all very important innovation metrics that, that you want to, Put in place so you get the new stuff. I mean, that's that's kind of a no-brainer. Where I think a lot of organizations miss the boat and don't even kind of focus is looking at kind of what fuels that innovation engine, those inputs. You know, so the inputs around what do you have to have to actually kind of get people to do things differently and to actually innovate. And so, you know, there's various things that you can focus on around kind of things for leadership, things for employees, things around your customers even. So examples um, might be like the percentage of funding that you're putting towards the sustaining or disruptive innovation versus just incremental innovation. Um, Or, you know, the senior executives time most executives are spent putting out fires, like focused on, you know, tomorrow, where actually most senior executives should be focused on the future, at least a decent amount of their time. So can you measure the amount of time they're spent focused on the future? Um, employees, you know, a number of ideas that employees, you know, you mentioned patents, you know, employees are submitting to, to patents or number of ideas that turn into actual innovation experiments in some way, or number of teams that submit projects to innovation award programs. Um, there's various things you can look at there. Um, and you can even do that for customers. I mean, measure, you know, you can engage customers in the innovation process and look at how many customers are engaging in your pilot projects or how many customers are submitting their own ideas for how you can improve. So those are the kinds of inputs that then allow you to innovate to then get that in game that you're looking for. Okay, but but this gets a little tricky, right? Because if you, let's say one of your big you know KPIs, one of the things you're going to uh, measure is the innovation awards one, how many employees are submitting to innovation awards or this or that. Doesn't that mean that just sort of like people are going to start applying to random stuff, even if they're not doing deserving work of it? I mean, it actually, I think we have this problem a lot with advertising agencies and everybody is submitting to cans just sort of because it's not even actual client work. They're just pretending it is because they're trying to get more submissions in. Well, so then, I mean, that, that's a great point. You can, you know, you can kind of game the system, I guess you can say. Um, and that's what you're kind of referring to. I mean, if you're measuring something, people always try to game the system, I guess. But, you know, you can set some criteria for those innovation awards in terms of how you kind of what, it, what uh, the submission requirements are. I mean, that's one example. But what, what's more powerful than that is to have leaders stand up and acknowledge the award you know, kind of submissions and winners, even the submissions that don't win, acknowledge the ones that are good enough to have been considered and why. And when leadership starts acknowledging even the quote unquote losers, as well as the winners and articulating what makes a great idea and why did this win, then then people see those stories, they see what leaders are saying, and they kind of get that that indicator um, for what's a good idea and what's value, valued by the organization through those leadership stories. So that's a, that becomes those awards, we talked about symbols, those awards become symbols of what's valued in the organization, which then shapes the behavior around the kind of work people will want to do and then the awards that they would apply for. Yeah, I mean, 
I suppose we could also just not tell them, right, that we're, that we're tracking this and just going, <laughs> I'm totally kidding. But uh, actually, actually, maybe I'm not. Um, you know, it, it, so that actually brings me to another uh, important one, an area I liked uh, it's a lot, actually, in this book, um, is the idea of worthless awards and worthless awards being the only ones that are actually um, all that worthwhile. Because, you know, we talked about measurement. Measurement comes with its challenges. Rewards and incentive systems is, an, is a whole other animal when it comes to trying to make this culture shift. Making sure we're picking the right rewards and rewarding the right things is huge. I think my favorite quote from the book that I just wrote as a headline in there is, worthless rewards are the most valuable rewards. And I couldn't agree more with that statement. Um, and the reason why is, you know, you look at some of the work from Dan Pink and others that basically say financial incentives actually decreases motivation and innovation. Um, and you can agree or disagree with that. But, you know, the the whole notion that worthless rewards, and I've got a story here from one of my clients, Colgate Palmolive. Um, they, here's a great example of how worthless rewards really drives behavior. So there were two um, uh, researchers in their technology group in Piscataway, New Jersey. Um, their global technology group, they have about 1,000 people working there, huge organization, global. And they, these two um, research managers convened a team that had to kind of work across functions and kind of do some things around innovation they'd really never done before. And at the end of the project, they had a team meeting, and these these two uh, managers had somehow gotten a hold of these wooden nickels. And wooden nickels as a symbol of kind of something totally valueless, like financially valueless. But for them, what they did is they kind of, as a joke, they gave away these wooden nickels to um, the team. And they handed them, you know, each a little little stack of wooden nickels. Well, those became symbols of appreciation for going above and beyond um, kind of the call of duty and collaborating across boundaries in the organization, across silos, because every organization is siloed. So the people who receive that award or the kind of informal award, worthless reward, these nickels, basically, you know, they felt good and, you know, kind of they got recognized for that kind of behavior from these managers. Well, what started to happen is that people took their nickels and when someone else would contribute to their project in a similar kind of collaborative, um, you know, supportive way, they would then give a nickel to them. And then people started buying more wooden nickels and, and giving them away in their meetings. And you might come back to your desk and there'd be some wooden nickels sitting on your desk anonymously because somebody was appreciative of what you did. And essentially they created what I called in the book a recognition economy because you've got this economy going where people are expressing appreciation through these vehicles that have absolutely no financial um, wealth to them, but are as meaningful in driving new behavior as anything and even more meaningful. So that's, a, I think that's a great example of a worthless reward. Oh, totally. You've got me on Amazon actually looking up wooden nickels right now. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, so it, it kind of reminds me too. I don't remember if I learned this from you or, uh, from reading some other book. There was a similar company that did it. Um, I mean, they did it with a much, uh, a much bigger thing, but it was a worthless, piece, they had these um, stress balls that were uh, in the shape of a brain. And then every engineer had a fishbowl basically in there um, on their desk. And every time they got a new patent or collaborated on a new patent, they would come around and put a new totally worthless. I mean, it probably cost 75 cents, right? Um, 
foam brain in their thing. So for each patent, et cetera. I like this idea, though, because it's much more sort of democratized, right? It really is that culture shift of this is something we all kind of do. And you know it, it like tipped when people started going out and buying their own, right? It wasn't just trusting HR to deliver one w- along with a form letter, right? It, w- it was just I came back from lunch and someone had snuck three wooden nickels on my desk. Well, the, the thing that is powerful about this is it's, it's authentic and it's honest. I mean, it's people appreciating people. And then it spread virally. And so, you know, an HR group kind of seeding it or, you know, I, I think it's probably possible to do that. Um, and, I, you know, I've seen examples of that. But the, what, the lesson from that is that it has to be authentic. It has to be real. And that's what created that kind of virality to it. But, you know, we all grow up with worthless rewards. And even in business, you know, you get a plaque. A plaque, you know, it might cost a little bit more. It might cost 40 bucks. But a plaque is totally worthless financially. You're not going to sell a plaque on Amazon or eBay. Um, but it's a symbol. And so, you know, those kind of formal symbols are also worthless rewards. And those are those can be important kind of formally, but the democratization of the awards and that recognition economy, uh, I actually think is kind of the future. And the question is, how do you really kind of shape that? I don't know, man. I'm a millennial. I kind of, I love getting those plaques, um, especially <laughs> when I get one just for being on a team, not for doing anything. No, I'm <laughs> totally kidding. Um, all right. So, so we've said this word a couple times and we touched on it lightly. Let's talk about symbols. Well, I mean, I'll, the easiest symbol ties to what um, we've just been talking about. So here's an example. It's a worthless reward. Uh, can also be a symbol. So there's a whole bunch of different types of symbols. But um, here's another example from um, one of my clients, KQED, that I just mentioned. So KQED, again, media company in San Francisco, um, what they do is for their innovators, they've created kind of a, an infrastructure. Um, they have a, what they call a cuvation team. So KQED, they've pulled the Q out of their acronym or out of their name, and they've established an innovation team that everybody knows the Cuvation team. Well, the Cuvation team kind of curates good ideas uh, or things that people have actually done. So it's not just ideas. It's actually things that people do going back to their innovation intent to kind of do the right thing for the organization and for their the community and for their, their audience. And they identify those people. And then what they do is they give them a trophy with a Q on the top of it. So essentially they're getting, you know, an award that is a worthless reward. It's a trophy, a Q trophy, the letter Q. I mean, who cares about the letter Q? Well, in that organization, a lot of people care about the letter Q and that trophy because it's a symbol of contribution. It's a symbol that they're living up to their innovation intent and values and that they are representing the the highest innovation values of the company. So a, a trophy is a symbol, but another symbol, what we talked about before, stories are symbols. So a story in a newsletter or a leader actually standing up and telling a story is a symbol of what is valued in an organization. And sometimes those leaders tell better stories and they anchor it into why that story was important and what it means for other people in terms of behavior. And sometimes they don't, but the stories are symbols because people can read into them and understand what are the assumptions underlying them and the values that then may guide behavior. Cause it's a, just, just, it's always a loop around, you know, we, we understand we have values and the assumptions lead to values and the, 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 uh, or the values lead to assumptions and that leads to behavior. And it's just kind of this constant, constant loop. 
So, um, and, and hopefully an upward loop, not a downward one, as long as we're not um, uh, talking about perceived trust. But, um, you know, I think that actually speaks to an interesting point, which is this is like you've outlined a perfect map. Um, you've outlined like, okay, let's do this, then we do this, then we do this. It's, it's the perfect plan that senior level leaders want to see. But no plan survives first contact with the enemy, right? So I know, and I know this from your own experience and just knowing you, it, it never works out sort of as smoothly. What, what do we do when the bumps in the road happen, especially when those bumps are actually people and you can't just run over them? Well, I mean, you, you talked about the, the map. Um, the way I look at it is every organization has its own map. Every organization has its own culture. Every organization needs to approach designing its innovation culture in its own unique way. Now, I, that kind of sucks because in a way, we're, business is always looking for that repeatable, standardized process that will give you just the answer. Um, but if you look at you know what Tim Cook at Apple says, there's no formula for innovation. So if there's no formula, every organization is kind of left to creating what? It's culture. So, you know, in terms of the leadership piece, you know, I think that, um, and I've got this in my book as a model, but basically I call it the invisible advantage map. And really what the invisible advantage map is, it's, it's just understanding the different dimensions that are important for driving culture. Um, and you can drive culture towards innovation, or like you just said, you know, that downward spiral, you can, you know, do things that actually inhibit and limit innovation. I call them um, innovation inhibitors. Um, but basically, you know, you look at your leadership, you look at your innovation intent, you look at your structure and process and how you're set, like literally kind of designed to set up uh, and support innovation. You look at your people and kind of the people you're hiring, how you're developing people. You look at your rewards and recognition, both formal and informal. Um, you look at uh, your metrics, as we talked about, and you even look at technology, both in terms of kind of the innovation process as well as, you know, kind of the collaboration that happens internally and externally. So, you know, there's a number of levers that you can pull, and you, you got to just kind of um, understand the leadership needs to understand the um, subtle messages and values it's transmitting each and every day and align those to and change those. So you're getting, you're, you're communicating kind of the innovation values rather than kind of the, the things that can stifle innovation. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. So um, I wanted, wanted to make sure to ask you one other question just because I kind of wondered it. So there are these really cool little, it's, it's not a chapter. It's actually sprinkled in, in each chapter in the book there are these awesome little actually you call them awesome examples exclamation point i have to point out that you you titled the sections with an exclamation point um and there's a bunch of when we talked about a couple of them there's a bunch of different ones there and it kind of makes me wonder this in this process you've worked on projects uh, you know big and small in terms of culture change especially what was sort of the most dramatic change that you've seen what was kind of the biggest like we had we went from this to now we really do have a, a culture of innovation and it's totally okay if you can't use the company's name that's that's a really interesting um question so these these awesome examples are really fun for me to create because you know there's so many examples out there in books that get regurgitated into articles and article examples that get regurgitated into books i actually went out and found awesome examples that had not been shared before out there in the world from my clients and my work and, you know, Zipcar is one of them, NBC Universal, 
SAP. Um, but I think Zipcar is probably my favorite example in the book um, because, you know, Zipcar, if you know the kind of the ride sharing service, they, they essentially established um, kind of the sharing economy model um, in the United States and I think in the world. And, you know, from they, they created the model that I think, you know, I could argue Airbnb uh, and Uber is based on essentially. And but one of the challenges that they had is that they established themselves. I mean, they were kind of pre-mobile. So they you know, a website and you can kind of go onto Zipcar and become a member and then kind of share cars. Well, a few years ago, what happened was that mobile was coming out and millennials, you know, kind of their key customer and, you know, we're all living on our phones, but Zipcar really had not perfected or even kind of thought about as, as deeply as they should the mobile experience. So you still had to go on the website to really kind of engage with the company. Well, what they did, they did a couple things, um, which I think is really interesting. One is symbolic. Um, they, they had a meeting, and they basically said, here's our mobile first strategy. So mobile first basically means we're starting out with the mobile experience and then web will kind of come second. So they brought everybody down to the basement uh, in their office. They had a couple old computers because uh, the computer was how people were kind of experiencing Zipcar. And they gave people sledgehammers and everyone took a whack at these computers and bashed them to bits as a symbolic gesture that kind of illustrates, hey, we're going in another direction here, guys. And so that story um, was intentionally created and lives on, uh, not just at Zipcar, but in the book now. And, uh, and that's one of the things that they did symbolically. But they do other things that I think are really awesome um, now as well. Like they do these customer roundtables where on a Saturday they actually bring in like a dozen real live customers and work with various teams in redesigning the Zipcar experience. So they're, you know, they're co-creating the experience with customers in these roundtables. And these roundtables have really shifted how people understand the customer, understand their needs, figure out what their wants are, and actually create solutions with them that they get so excited about that they just kind of just drive forward, you know, kind of with the implementation. So um, those roundtables have created kind of a new process. So they've got the sim- symbols, they've got the process, and that's really remade uh, their culture and kind of kind of helped Zipcar kind of get into this mobile uh, world. Mm, that's hey, a, that- that's really really cool. Um, and reminds me of my favorite scene from Office Space, right, where they take the fax machine out to the uh, to the field and smash it to bits. I love it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so not I mean, not only is it an amazing symbol and story, et cetera, but yeah, any anything that pulls from Office Space as inspiration is bound to be impactful, right? And speaks to the culture piece. So the the book again is the Invisible Advantage: How to Create a Culture of Innovation. Soren, you know what's coming next because you're a repeat guest on the show. We we'll switch from the book and the ideas in the book to specifically you and ask you a few questions. The first one, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I have ever received. Um, don't go it alone is one of the pieces of advice I received. Um, and I, I think that that, that stands at the kind of personal level for me. Um, you know, thinking that you kind of can take the world on, take your, you know, kind of life on. 
And being able to be open and vulnerable and open up to other people is really key, but it's also a very important business lesson as well. Um, in this day and age, don't go it alone basically means you can't really innovate. You can't do a whole lot without partners, without real collaboration. Um, so don't go it alone with something. I don't even remember who te- told it to me. I think I've heard it from a couple different folks, uh, business mentors, as well as uh, family members. Um, but uh, but that's really, I think, uh, pretty key. It has been key for my life as well as, uh, I think, you know, the future of business. Love it. What's an ideal work day look like for you? Ideal work day, 6 a.m. group fitness class at the uh, at my gym. I'm done by 7. Uh, I'm doing a little bit of uh, writing in the morning before checking email. And then I kind of jump into the flurry of my day, which includes uh, various consulting engagements, scoping out leadership development programs, and um, you know maybe, maybe doing a kind of um, – booking a speaking gig, but, uh, my ideal day looks like no travel. That's what it looks like. Uh, <laughs> probably is about half of my days, <laughs> but, but, uh, but I, I try to control my day pretty, pretty well by, uh, literally turning off my phone sometimes as well as, uh, unplugging, uh, here and there, depending on what I'm doing. Hmm. So, um, what are you reading right now? Um, I'm reading nothing actually. Oh, and the reason the reason why I'm reading nothing is because um, I've been working so hard to get my own book out. I probably read it a hundred times, uh, and I don't want to read anything anymore, uh, especially anything I've written. Um, but you know, I, I kind of say that in jest. Um, what I what I am what I read are actually a lot of blog posts, a lot of kind of uh, LinkedIn Pulse articles. Um, I think now and now more than ever, it's kind of hard to decipher what is fake news versus real. But, uh, you know, if you can kind of pick and choose, um, I kind of get the essence of a lot. I read a lot, but I don't read a whole lot of books anymore, which is kind of a weird thing when you're writing books. Um, the world's changed a little bit, but that's why, you know, I'm doing this, uh, this program with you and, you know, I'm continuing to write on fast company and other outlets to kind of get the, the essence of my message out in different formats. Well, and I think if if I'm going to jump in on your own answers, I think there is something to be said for keeping a regular stimulus of those things because especially, you know, I found this as an author in my second book. If you are constantly scanning and so you're following Inc. and Fast Company but and LinkedIn Pulse and those kind of things, you're catching um, a lot of hints at what are going to become big stories and then you have the opportunity to sort of present them etc so it helps you find those you would call them awesome examples right but it helps you find those kind of things because it the brevity allows you to kind of widen your radar well here's the other thing the book industry is absolutely broken it takes nine months to a year to get a book out so by the time you write anything it's outdated I mean, literally, if you're writing about trends or anything happening in the world, it's going to be outdated by the time you get it out, unless maybe you're self-publishing it. So, you know, I, I think that the uh, the book industry itself, ripe for disruption, and one of the issues with being an author is you got to figure out how do you get your message out in a more of a real-time way that fits the world. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, next question, what do you believe that most people don't? That's interesting. I you you've never shared that uh, question with that me. That is a new one for you. Yeah, you have that that's been we've done one year of it and it's my favorite question to ask people, but uh, I deliberately did not give you a warning. No, you did not, but I'm going to uh, ask you what is one of the best answers you've received to that question and then I'll give 
Um, I mean, we receive a bunch of different, uh, a lot of times people give you a personal answer. And so it's a peek into their personal ideology or faith or something like that. Um, you, you know, uh, I think probably one of the better answers, uh, I've ever heard had to do with, um, their, their, their belief was there is no plan, right? So there isn't a, a uniform, like do this, do this, do this. And people who tell you otherwise are probably selling you some sort of online course. Um, and so in reality, it was much more a process of kind of discovery driven, right? But, um, yeah, people give a lot of different answers. It's kind of fun. Yeah, no, that, that would be fun. Um, so, you know, I think that it's, it's funny that you mentioned there's, there's no plan. And I, I take that as kind of the, um, uh, higher power, no plan. Um, but it, I'm going to go back to my, my leapfrogging book, uh, which the central theme in it was, uh, you got to harness the power of surprise, um, to move, fo- move anything forward. And so, you know, I, I think I believe that, um, that, basically you, you can't control a whole lot. Um, even in business, you know, you, you can create a, a three-year plan or even a one-year plan. And the assumption behind that is you actually, you can predict the future and you can control all those variables to get to that, you know, end point. And the reality is surprises are going to happen. So our life is full of surprises, uh, good and bad. And so the, the real the question is how do you look at those surprises that are thrown your way and decipher them so that you can see the guideposts in them um, around your personal life, around what it means for business, around whatever, um, because nothing's predictable. Every day uh, is a surprise in my view, and, and kind of how do you stay tuned in and open to what uh, life's telling you uh, in those surprises? And some of them are tiny and minuscule, and you have to even look for the surprise in it, and other ones are big you know, big things that can happen that are good or bad. And uh, how do you move through, how do you take that and kind of move through it? Um, and that's resilience. Uh, mm. So I guess that that's kind of, that's where I would net out on that answer. No, that's a great one. It actually, you reminded me of uh, my favorite Tony Robbins quote, which is a weird thing to say, but in fairness, Tony was delivering a Ted talk and you know, he talks about how many you like surprises and people, some people raise their hand and he goes, bull crap. You like surprises that you like, but you don't really like it when surprise you've got cancer, right? You don't like it when surprise something bad happened to you. Right. And I think there's a lot of truth in that, 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 um, learning how to be okay with surprise in each form and then also respond to it, use it as a guidepost, move forward is, is huge. I, I love that. So thank you. Um, final question. So the title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In your view, what makes someone a leader? I think, you know, that there's so many different answers on that. Um, for me, what, what makes someone a leader is that they're following what they believe to be right. And everybody's going to have their own definition of right, probably, um, and that they help others um, follow what they believe to be right. And sometimes those coincide and sometimes they don't. Um, but I think that that's really the essence. Leadership is kind of having a sense of what you believe is is right for you, and that uh, what you you know how you can then help others do what's right for them. And uh, and ideally, there's alignment. Um, sometimes there's not, um, but that's kind of the the essence of of how I look at it. That's great. That's great. Soren Kaplan, the book again is Invisible Advantage, How to Create a Culture of Innovation. We'll have links to that on the show notes as well, of course, and to the the first book, Leapfrogging. So you want to check all of that out at davidberkus.com slash 803. If you are uh, listening and want to know the direct link or just davidberkus.com, you can get there. Soren, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. A real pleasure. Thanks, David.